Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Movie Chumps, episode 58, Scent of a Woman. Let's get after it. Hi, Mrs. Rossi. I'm here about the weekend job. Come on in. They put him in a veteran's home, but he hated it. Colonel's a gentleman. A real hero. This is some guy. Down deep, the man is a lump of sugar. Get in here, you idiot. What do you want? Give me what I want. What do you want here? I want want a job. A job? I promise you an easy 300 bucks. I don't get an easy feeling. How's your skin, son? I like my aides to be presentable. Well, I, I've had a few sets, um, but my roommate, he loved me as clinic because he's from Chestnut Hill, and he's got... The History of My Skin by Charles Sims. Get out my dress blues. They're in a garment bag in the closet. Are, are we going someplace, Curtis? What business is that of yours? Don't shrug, imbecile. I'm blind. Our destination is New York City. I, I'm just going to have to turn right around and come back. Charlie's having a difficult weekend. How does he look like he's holding up? Oh, he looks fine to me. Don't think I can't see women because I can't see women. Boy, you have a one-track mind. Women are the essence of life. She's wearing flores. Flederokai, Ogilvy Sister's Soap. That's amazing. Well, I'm in the amazing business. I-, I should be getting back to school. Ooh. I don't think you're going to make it. You said that the last shuttle leaves at 10 o'clock. I lied. All I want is one last tour of the battlefield. You're just in a slump right now. How would you know, watching MTV all your life? From Martin Brest, director of Midnight Run and Beverly Hills Cop. Make your own rules. Be your own board of governors. Pay your own dues. I don't know whether they shoot you or adopt you. It's not much of a choice, is it, sir? Al Pacino. Chris O'Donnell. Scent of a woman. What a marvelous place. This film, ultra quotable. There's almost too many good lines in all Pacinos. I wouldn't call it a good screenplay in terms of story and structure, my friend, but I would argue the dialogue is dynamite. Every freaking Pacino line, gold, especially in his hands. Absolutely, 100%. This is... This is Pacino's vehicle from start to finish. I like the way you tap that because it's not necessarily a super compelling drama, but he carries the movie just by his performance alone. And there's not always a lot of films that that's the case, but it's definitely here. Yeah, every every line is quotable. I mean, like, there's so many times when somebody says something stupid, I just go, uh-oh, we got a moron here. <laughs> <laughs> Get in here, you idiot. Where you from? Yeah. <laughs> History t- of My Skin by Charlie Sim. <laughs> uh, Son of a Woman. That's not Corey Cook's college nickname. That's the title of uh, Movie Chumps episode 58. Still in the era of Zoom and COVID, but we're getting there, folks. April 21st for uh, posterity purposes, 2021. He's Corey. I'm Luke. 
man, it's good to see you again. And you're just bespectacled. Uh, can I spit it out? Bespectacled Chris Sabo, Kareem Abdul Jabbar <laughs> look you got going on. I, I was tonight. thinking this is more Hulk, Horace Grant from the early 90s. Ah. For, for the rec specs. No, but I actually finally just got these glasses back. They were out for like a month and they forgot to tell me that they were back in because they got it's this weird thing. Like I found out there's a thing called crazing. Apparently, if you like use the heat to like adjust your frames and it like gets too close to this particular type of lens, it can cause this like fractal pattern, which is exactly what happened. So they had to go fix them. It was weird. Fascinating. Hey, speaking of Jabbar, it was his birthday last week. You know, I learned over the last week, his real first name, not obviously we know it's Lou Alcinder. That was his name before he changed it. His real first name, Ferdinand. It's Ferdinand Lewis Alcinder Jr., which I just thought was funny. Junior. Junior. All right. uh, Let's see here. Before we do our five questions, we got a little Oscar chat to tackle because Sunday is the big night. Yes. Sunday is the big night. It's the only award show that I watch. And I, for the last, God, I want to think eight years or something like that. I've done a live Twitter of it because it's just fun to do. Um, Obviously I'm off Twitter now, but for you movie chump fans, no, no worries. Cause I'm going to be taking over the uh, Twitter handle come Sunday night and do a live tweet fest the whole time. But we thought since uh, it is Oscar time, that Luke and I would do the the big six uh, of in terms of our picks being actor, actress, sporting actor, sporting actress, director, and picture. So I'm going to go read these off by category. Luke, you can give your pick in terms of who you maybe you want to win or who should win, and then I'll give mine. So first up is actor in a leading role. The nominees are Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Anthony Hopkins for The Father, Gary Oldman for Mank, and Stephen Yoon for Minari. Who you got, Luke? I am rooting for, I don't know if he's going to get, I actually think, check that, I think he is going to get this, and I'm also rooting for him just because I love him as an actor, and I like the way you spoke about this movie because I haven't seen it, but uh, Riz Ahmed, he's my choice. If this was any other year but... This one, I would think that it's a slam dunk and Riz Ahmed would take this home. However, Chadwick, uh, Chadwick Boseman is the one I think that's going to win this award all the way. And I think deservedly so um, his performance. If you got if if your last performance has got to be something like Chadwick Boseman did in Malrani's Black Bo- uh, Bottom, you count yourself fortunate because it is at one hell of a performance and, and one of the best. There's a sequence that has one of the best monologues I've ever seen in a film. And, uh, you know, the fact that, I mean, I, here's the thing. It, he's got the, I don't want to say the fact that he passed away thing going for him. You, we can't kind of ignore that. But regardless, if he hadn't have passed, I still think he would have won this award. Uh, still won this award. So I think that's a slam dunk. You can take that one to the bank. And he was on the up and up. And he's he's got a lot of screen time in this, right, you said? On oh, a yeah. previous pod? Okay. Yeah, he's, he's definitely the lead in this for sure. I mean, co-lead alongside Viola Davis. But yeah, he's definitely worthy of the acting role. All right, actor in a supporting role. Nominees are Sasha Baron Cohen for The Trial of the Chicago 7, Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah, Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami, Paul Racy for Sound of Metal, and Lakeith Stanfield for Judas and the Black Messiah. Luke, who is your pick in this category? I was praising to high heaven these two dudes when we talked about uh, Judas and the Black Messiah a few episodes ago, so I'm going to continue doing that. 
I'm rooting for one of the two dudes in there, Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, as has been written about constantly. I feel like if you're into the movie biz, uh, we don't know who the hell the focus is of this movie is. That's been kind of one of the things. So I say either one of these dudes, I really loved them both. And again, I'm a little bit biased because this was like the first movie that brought me back to the theater in the pandemic. So I was really like emotionally connected, I guess, you know, I was just happy to be back. And also the whole Fred Hampton story I'd always heard about. And like, you know, some of my favorite rappers have talked about him over the years. And I just kind of knew like the broad brushstrokes. So just to see everything coalesce was, has me all really pumped for this film and this award. So I'm going with these two dudes. One of these two dudes, I don't care. I'm all in. I think that it's probably likely that one of them is going to take it. And I would say that the person who's probably going to win is Daniel Kaluuya. You make a great point, though. It's really I didn't think either one of these parts were technically supporting roles. You could have seen them as co-leads. Yeah. As as we know, when it comes to. But really, who cares? You know, yeah, really, who cares? I mean, this is this when it comes to Academy Awards, it's a lot of politics and they put you in categories where they think you can win. And I think it would, it would have been easier for one of them to win the supporting category than it would have been to be been the lead. But I think uh, my pick's probably going to be Daniel Kaluuya to, to win this, although I wouldn't be disappointed if Lakeith Stanfield won. Next up is actress in a leading role. Nominees are Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Andrew Day for The United States versus Billie Holiday, Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman, Frances McDormand for Nomadland, and Carrie Mulligan for Promising Young Woman. This is a tough, tough category, Luke. Maybe the really the only real wild card in this entire um, Academy Awards. Who do you got for this one? I have the person who it seems like folks are leaning towards and has been kind of the, I don't want to say the hot movie the last couple of months, but I think has the most spark coming into the uh, award show. And that's for Nomadland. So I'm going with uh, Frances McDormand. Again, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen many movies this year that are on the big list, but I've just have always liked her. And I'd like to see her kind of take it home. If trailers are to be believed, I thought her performance in the trailer for this is better, if not equal to all the other ones. That's my trailer perspective. Yeah, for this one, I really think it's kind of a crapshoot. This is such a competitive uh category that i'm really not sure who's going to win i've got a feeling that it's going to be viola davis and incidentally if she does win she would be only the second black woman ever to win best actress the only one who's ever done that is holly berry which is amazing to think about when you think of how long the the academy awards have been going on but it's really kind of a toss-up i think Frances mcdormand possibly could win that would be her third uh best actress uh uh oscar uh, she's won two before, um, one for Fargo and the other for three billboards outside, uh, um, I think it's Billings, Montana. But I don't know. Like, I really think I got a feeling that it's it's going to go to Viola Davis, but I guess we'll see. And there's a big push for Andrew Day, too, so who knows? All right. Actress in a supporting role. The nominees are Maria Bakalova for a Borat subsequent movie film. Uh, delivery of prodigious bribe to American regime for make benefit once glorious nation of Kazakhstan. Yes. That's the entitled <laughs> I like title how you read of the that whole movie. Thing. I couldn't not <laughs> Glenn, Glenn close for hillbilly hillbilly allergy. Incidentally also got nominated for a Razzie in the same category for the same movie, <laughs> Olivia Coleman for the father, Amanda Seyfried. Yay. For mank and Yu Jung Yoon for Minari. 
So who is your pick here? I'm going with Amanda Seyfried. I really loved Mank. That's like my favorite movie, I think. My big name favorite movie of the year. Probably that and Judas. Um, so I'm going with her in there. I didn't praise her super well when we did the pod, but I, I did like her kind of sparkle in this film. Um, I, I, I hate to say it. I thought you could have put a lot of other folks in that same role and they would have been equal or better, but I thought she was really good. And I thought it could be like a good, uh, pivotal moment for her, her career, especially right. if she wins. I've, so I would, I'm, I'll say this one. This is one of the ones where I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for Amanda, uh, Amanda Seyfried to win. I would like to see her win. Uh, if she doesn't win, I, you know, it would kind of be nice to see Glenn Close win since he's been nominated so many Love times. Her. But it kind of stinks if they give her a Lifetime Achievement Award for this freaking movie. But uh, I have a feeling that it's going to be Yu Jung Yoon for Minari, which I still haven't gotten a chance to see, to see because that and the father are still 20 bucks on Voodoo to rent. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not shelling that. Amount. No way. I'm going to see if I can watch Promising Young Woman before uh, before Sunday night, but I'm probably not going to get to those other two. But, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be you, Jung Yoon, but I definitely am rooting for Amanda Seyfried. All right, next up would be directing. And the nominees are Thomas Vinterberg for Another Round, which, incidentally, I hear is a great, great film. Uh, it's international. David Fincher for Mank. Lee Isaac Chung for Minari. Chloe Zhao for Nomadland and Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman. Tough, tough category again, Luke. I have no, no idea who I think is going to win, to be honest, in this one. But I'm going with Fincher for Mank. I know a lot of people have been kind of, this got some early Oscar buzz, but I think for like the wrong reasons. It was like, hey, it's a throwback love letter to Hollywood, and it's in black and white, so it's kind of, shall we say, uh, a novelty, if you will. And it's the fact that it's Fincher, which this movie, like we said in the pod, has you would never know this is a Fincher film, I would argue, if mm -hmm. not for seeing it on the Internet or knowing in the credits that it's, hey, it's Fincher. I just loved what he did here. I loved every shot. Yes, it was slow at times. It takes a little bit to get going. But once it gets going, it's cooking with gas, with grease. Um, so I'm going with Fincher. All right. Uh, I think this one is a foreground conclusion. This one's going to go to Chloe Zhao. Um, she is going to become only the second woman to win Best Director and, a, and the first of uh, woman of color to do so. My, I would like to see. Oh, that's right. What am I talking about? Of course, yeah. she's going to get this. Yeah, <laughs> I would like to see David. Not Fincher. just because of that, but like I, I said, Nomadland's been been touted. I, I yes. will say this. I thought here's the thing. I thought Nomadland was perfectly fine. I, I think it's kind of overrated in terms of, you know, all the praise it's getting. Uh, I personally think Mank is a better film, and I think the directing uh, duty was that uh, David Fincher did a, a better job. Uh, I'd like to see him win, but he's not going to win. It's going to be to, to Chloe Zhao. I got to give you some courage points here because, like we said months ago, one of my dad's big pet peeves is he goes, I wish every critic would see the same movie at the same time. Mm -hmm. So nobody could like piggyback off other ones. So if like four people are saying, oh, it's a masterpiece, blah, blah, blah. There's always that one guy that's going to be like, all right, I, I didn't really think it was a masterpiece, but I don't want to be the guy that says no. You could have easily blown this film and said it was like the greatest, it's you know, not, American I mean, saga. I like how you're honest about that. I think I mean, a lot like of people a, won't be. It's a good film. And I think it's it, it tackles a very interesting subject. And I think Chloe Zhao is definitely deserving of a best, uh, you know, 
uh, director nomination. I think the the direction in it is impeccable. It's very elegiac. Uh, you know, Francis McDormand, Francis McDormand has is made an exceptional performance. I just thought uh, to some degree it was kind of slow. There wasn't yeah. a lot of dialogue, and I, I don't know. It was just it was. I found it kind of boring. But you know, they can't all be bangers. You know, it seems um, like one of those movies where you kind of have to be in the mood to really enjoy it, if that makes sense. Yeah. It can't be one of those 1030 at nights. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll give this a shot. Movies. And, you know, it's one of those ones that you kind of, because there's actually real life people in it well, as well that are part of that group, the nomads that aren't like actors. So it's kind of, it feels a little disjointed sometimes, but the cinematography is, is fantastic. So um, we'll see what happens. And finally, the big one, best picture. The nominees are The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. Luke, who are you picking? I'm pushing for Mank, Judas, or Sound of Metal. Even though, again, I haven't seen Sound of Metal. Saw the other two, loved the other two. I don't want to see it go to The Trial of the Chicago 7, just because as much as I really enjoyed that film, I don't think it's best movie worthy. It just seems like it's almost typical, but in a good way, Aaron Sorkin. And I just don't want it to be one of those cases where, hey, it's 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 the protesters fighting against the man. And it's been that kind of year with, with the George yeah. Floyd stuff going on. Let's not just give it to that movie because of that reason. You mean give the award to, uh, to the film based on its own merits? You're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah, I just, I don't like to see that. Um and as good as it was, again, I just not best movie worthy. I, I would really like to see Mank get it. Uh, I think Judas deserves to be in there too. And I'm kind of pushing for that more as like a fan as I am for, is it this like towering achievement? Mm -hmm. um, but I love the performances in it. And of course, Sound of Metal, everybody I respect who's seen it, including yourself, like absolutely loves it. So in a weird way, I'm kind of like in that dark horse camp for that film. <laughs> See, I'm kind of tied with this one in terms of who I want to win. I think Judas and the Black Messiah and Sound of Metal are right there in terms of who I believe should win the award. Full disclosure, I haven't seen The Father, Promising Young Woman, or Minari for reasons I've already outlined, although I'm hoping to bang out one of those three uh, before, before Sunday. I feel like the one that is going to end up winning is Nomadland. Uh, just because I think it still has that momentum. Yeah, that's that's kind of my pick. Is I think Nomad Land's going to win. I'm, I'm I'm with you when you said above this trial, the Chicago Seven, and it's kind of it's just I'm I'm. It's still not that I don't it. like it. I I really liked it. And it's just a weird ceremony this year. I think because of the COVID situation, and you know, we, there's so many movies that didn't get released in 2020 that if they would have, I think the the, the landscape would have looked very different. But hopefully, that's a that's a change for for next year. I really enjoyed the Grammys. I like how they set that up, but this is a different beast. Those are so much more performance-based. Mm -hmm. So we're talking, uh, but this one's tough. And I love yeah. the glamour and glitz and seeing the stars, seeing what they're wearing. I'm not usually one of those type of guys, but when it comes to the Oscars, I love, hey, it's, it's people you haven't seen sometimes all year or guys you kind of forgot about. Kind of forgot about Brad Pitt and Leo for whatever reason. Yeah. And looking forward to seeing them Sunday. So we'll see. All right. It's been and that's fun. our picks. We'll uh, we'll revisit this next week. We'll do a little quick Oscar wrap up in the next pod, and then uh, you won't have to hear about that for another year. Um, all right, time for five questions. My turn this time. It's right out of the gate. What is the best Academy Award speech you've ever heard? 
that you can think of. This is kind of cliche, but I the Cuba Gooding Jr. one touched me because and I he had, touched other people. So <laughs> oh oh man, I shouldn't have said it too like soon, that. I, too soon. I really didn't mean that. <laughs> I really didn't. Some listeners are gonna be like, "Oh, good one, Mayo, real original." I I totally forgot about all that. Good gosh. Now that just because it seemed really genuine, and he got up there and he was excited, and I really didn't think he was gonna win, to be honest. Just because usually roles like that go to something more serious. Right. He just had a good dynamic performance. And for a lot of us, we'd seen him in so many things before that. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, like he kind of gets his due. I guess he wasn't in that much before that, but, but yeah, that's, that's the first one that comes to mind. He, he always told a great story, Cuba Gooding Jr. about how uh, Anthony Hopkins like uh, assaulted him backstage. And it's like, come on, show me the money. Say the line. <laughs> like, to, it's so, so weird now because that's such a cliche line. Yeah, it is. Uh, for myself, I, I think the best I ever heard was Matthew McConaughey's speech when he won for um, Dallas Buyers Club, just because it's yes. it was so it wasn't rehearsed. It seemed off the cuff and genuine. And he just him talking about, you know, something to look forward to, you know, something to be grateful for someone to chase. Um, I just thought it just felt very genuine, very from the heart. Um, and as, especially after having read his, his memoir, um, it had even more impact in my mind. But that was my my favorite speech. I like the emotional ones where they're authentic and it doesn't seem like they overly planned it. Yeah. The, Joe Pesci definitely did plan his. Thank you. It's an honor. Bye-bye. Is that <laughs> what like, he said? No, it's, it's, it's like a line. It, he, seriously, it's like five seconds long. It's for Lethal Weapon 2. Yeah, I, yeah, I for, yeah, yeah, Lethal Weapon 2. All right. Number two. Well, here's a good one. I, I, I've always liked to ask people. We'll on. see. No, Oscar time. What's in the Academy Award category that doesn't exist but you feel should? Maybe just a simple one, like best action film. Because so many times there's exceptional techniques, camera techniques, or even like Drive or Baby Driver. Pretty much any movie that we've done in this podcast that involves a car could have been nominated for something other than like, say, special effects or editing. See, for to me, it's it's always been two. One is uh, for best stunt coordination. I do not understand how we have the, the movies have been around for over a hundred years. We've had stunt coordinators and stuntmen and stunt some people, I should say for that a long amount of time and still do not get recognition where they should at the Academy Awards. That's insane to me. The second one is I always felt there's, there should be a best ensemble cast Oscar uh, just like they have for kind of the SAG awards because there's, you know, certain ones. Trial of the there. Chicago Seven. Yeah, Boom. there's, yeah, exactly. There's certain ones out there that the the cat. One night in Miami, the whole cast is. Yeah, great. I would love to see a category like that. So those are my picks. Good ones. Uh, three. What do you consider to be an underrated courtroom drama? A few good men probably doesn't count. A time to kill is definitely underrated. It's been it's been a little forgotten. Not on TV as much. People I feel like rarely talk about it. Which is unfortunate because you got a great Sam L. Jackson. You got McConaughey freaking knocking triples all around. And, of course, you can't forget Kevin Spacey. Yeah. A forgotten as Spacey performance. As much as people sometimes would like to, you can't. Um, that's a solid one. Um, Mine. Sorry, go ahead. But yeah, I, don't know if that, I don't know. Is that technically my answer? You say underrated? Underrated. That's fine. I'm, gonna, that's I'm actually going to come back. I'm going to think about this during the pod. Okay. And come back to you. But for right now, I'll say a time to kill. That's a good answer. For me, a really good one I don't think anybody talks about is Runaway Jury. Uh, you know, it's got uh, John Cusack's in Yes, it. that was Gene, great. Gene Hackman, Dustin Hoffman, and the only film that they were ever in together, which is ironic because they were roommates back in the 60s for years. 
And really, the last great uh, performance by Gene Hackman. It was his second last film. The last film was Welcome to Mooseport, which I just don't count. But it's it's a great. Uh, Is great that the where they had film. to figure out like? Which jurors to buy off or something? Yeah, basically. that's right. That was really good. Yep. Uh, so there was that. That that's my that's my answer. That's a really good one. Uh, four. This one's from our our boy Mike Pitagano. Would you rather live on Mars for a year or the Moon for a year? Come on, Pagano. Really? He didn't ask this question. I said this is in tribute to him. Oh, I, I thought he gave you. I'm like, no, Mike, no, no, no. no. I'm call, we're calling him right now. We're getting him on here live. <laughs> we're going to ream him out for it. I feel like because of the Martian, thanks to Matt Damon and Ridley Scott, I would have a little bit more motivation. The moon, it just seems like, de- I shouldn't say desolate. It's not like the Mars is Manhattan. But the, <laughs> but the moon just seems cold and dark and... I don't know. It sounds like the name of a freaking meatloaf album, which based on what I just said, Mars. And I'd use Total Recall. I'd be, I'd be quoting Total Recall. I'll get by a little bit longer on Mars. Get ready for a surprise. <laughs> I the moon was my- cool 40 years ago or 60 years ago. I'm cool a, with just It's about to time. be cool in three years. Yeah, it's got and when we land on it again, and I guess Starship just got approved as the as the official vehicle, so that's pretty cool. Hey, that's cool. Uh, for me, it's a I would get my ass to Mars. It would have to be I'd go to Mars. I, oh. I definitely would want to see see Mars and be on Mars for a year. See, um, you know, just the Ballas Marineris and Olympus Mons and all that. I think that would be super cool. Uh, so that's my answer would be Mars. Final question, which may be a five A 5A and five B depending on your answer. Your preferred taco filling steak chicken or ground beef steak final answer easiest question i've ever had oh my my wife told me to tell you you're wrong with that answer it's supposed to be ground i thought you married up (laughs) she's not gonna like that one yeah she she told me it's like if if he answers ground beef you can go to question b which is what's the appropriate way to make a taco Wow, I'm surprised you went food for the fifth one. You threw yep. me off. I thought for sure you were going to have some, something Pacino-esque here. Nope. A lot of great a lot of great questions as always, Corey, uh, and a lot of great quotes in this film. I started writing a bunch down that I enjoyed. It got to the point where I was like, my hand was getting tired from writing this crap down. Everything <laughs> Pacino says, as I mentioned before, was entertaining, and that's probably because it was him saying it. He sounds like Foghorn Leghorn in here, especially <laughs> at the beginning when he first meets uh, Chris O'Donnell, and, of course, more so at the end in the in the courtroom scene. There is an underrated courtroom movie, Son mm-hmm. of a Woman. Is that how you thought about that question? Uh, no, I didn't. I actually never thought of it. I guess you could kind of consider it. Yeah, you can't consider it end. a yeah. courtroom. No, but this I had really had a blast uh, rewatching this. I, there's so many weird conclusions that I came to. The first one is Pacino is way the hell over the top in here. But my but my counter to that is I really don't care. Like I love that he's going for it with every line. I just had so much of a blast. It was like a trip to the amusement park. Yeah, I mean it's. There is some moments here where I think he does go over the board, but there's a lot of subtlety and nuance here. There's a lot yes. of quiet moments as well, you know, that really, it, even when he's kind of over the top and intense, you know, that he's, you know, it's like, what life? I'm in the dark here. You know, some people think that's over the top, but I thought it was really intense and passionate. You see him tearing up. See, here's the thing. 
and I, I'm so I, I'm all over the place in here with Pacino in this. I, I, I kept going back and forth, whether I thought this was the most brilliant Pacino performance ever or whether I thought it was like so cartoonish. When he goes nuts like that, when he goes like, you know, in my home when my wife sleeps, you know, like the whole Godfather 2 go nuts at Kate, Pan, Frank Pantangeli. When he goes that kind of psycho, I'm cool with actually. Mm-hmm. It just, to me, it was a little over the top when he's just delivering some of those lines where it almost just seems like he's having too fun playing it too cool. That just seemed like so unrealistic to me and inauthentic. that I was just like, all right, come on. This sounds like a, like a Broadway show. Like at the beginning there, there's all kinds of those little ones here. Get in here, you idiot. Uh-oh, <laughs> we got a moron here. Where are you from? Intelligence yeah. of which you have none. <laughs> little lines like, you sharpshooting me, punk? It's like <laughs> nonstop. He goes, ASAP, that means now. <laughs> like all that, those, that opening scene st- with him, still interesting. But it was those times where I thought he went over the top, not the times where he raised his voice and went freaking steroid Pacino. I'm cool with steroid Pacino. I think he was just kind of establishing <laughs> his 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 personality traits. Right, he right. Kind of has that. I don't say it's for somebody who has a death wish and wants to kill himself. He's definitely got a lust for life when it comes to food and driving a Ferrari and you know, kind of having you know. He's obviously very intelligent. You know, quoting certain you know certain texts and he's and, super intelligent yeah he's super he's he's slick he's sly i just love kind of how he delivers this performance and i don't consider necessarily things kind of over the top because of the fact that i feel i love pacino i love pretty much everything he's in sometimes he slides by by being al pacino though yes you know let's be honest after I'm going to be very honest after scent of a woman and then heat the next great performance by him in, in from a movie perspective, not necessarily from a miniseries like HBO where he did Kevorkian and whatnot was probably the Irishman. Other than that, there's a lot of stuff that he was kind of sliding by and being, being Al Pacino. True. But, true. But for this role in particular, I mean, you could really see his his dedication. Like, I completely believed him as, as a blind man in the terms of, you know, how how he moved, you know, the way he conducted himself with his cane. You know, he really wanted to commit to that. He worked with uh, clients from New York Associated Blind, especially the ones that really had the issue of going from having it, losing it due to trauma, because you wanted to see their progression from going from kind of that depression to all the way up to acceptance. And then he worked with this other group called Lighthouse, which really gave him a lot of instruction on how to like hold a, you know, pour, pour a drink or smoke a cigar or like how you'd grow up for a chair or things like that. I feel like it gave that, and I'm loving that word, verisimilitude to the, to the performance that I don't think you see a ton in some of his, his other works. Uh, but there's there's the, and there's some subtle nuances here that really cut to the bone, like when he meets up with his his brother there and like causes a scene at Thanksgiving and it's about to leave and just he's like, I'm no fucking good. And I never have been. You know, it's one of those kind of quiet delivery lines that's not the, you know, hoo-ha that we've seen a couple times in, in the movie that kind of gets you home there. Yeah, I'm such a hypocrite with Pacino in this movie because. I'm just, I'm so all over the fricking dartboard with him in this, where I was like, come on here. Every time he would say one thing, I would say, get out of town. And then he'd, he'd do something else. And I thought, oh, wow, that's a great, 
subtlety to the point where I, it's almost like I don't know where I stand on Pacino in this. Here's, here's, here's some big, big picture meta conclusions. One is when people imitate Al Pacino now, they're basically imitating Lieutenant. Is it Lieutenant? Frank Slade, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade, right? They're they're that's basically what they're doing, especially the hua, yeah. which he really doesn't go overboard with in this film. The way people always hua, he doesn't yeah. like put that much throat into it. He's just yeah. kind of tossing it out there. It's which, by the way, it stands for heard, understood, and acknowledged. I found that out in the research. It is actually a military team term, which is different than ura. That's uh, what I was is, thinking. Which yeah. is done by the Marines, which. I've read, it's funny, I read the details and that said, if you want an explanation about what that means, ask a Marine. (laughs) (laughs) No, so, yeah, and I I actually, yeah, I mean, he probably says that I think like, I think it's like three or four times. Yeah, I mean, it's it's at least three. It's not every two seconds. Right, I think it's just memorable for when he says it, especially like Mm -hmm. at the end when when Chris O'Donnell's pretty much excused and then he goes, Ooh, and then the crowd yeah. goes nuts, like way more over the top than they should. Mm-hmm. And then the right. music kicks in or he goes, right. Ooh, and the crowd goes nuts. Like, like the Yankees just came from behind in the nine. Like yeah, everybody's a- high fiving and making, like, I'm surprised they're not making out in the crowd during that. <laughs> Go back and watch that scene. <laughs> well, it isn't all boys go, but then again, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy that, you know, that, that, yeah. And the more you say that it doesn't seem to make sense that, all of a sudden, they're they're you know it's like like you said like the Yankees just won in the, in the bottom of the ninth. Like, do they really uh, give a shit? Not everybody gives a shit about this one little prank. I don't know. Yeah, but we'll get I to mean, we'll get to that later though. But let me get back to Pacino real quick. So okay. another thing, Pacino I've noticed sounds like he's imitating Governor Cuomo, imitating Pacino. <laughs> so it's almost like Pacino heard Cuomo imitating Pacino, and then Pacino decided to do that impression. I heard Cuomo today, a soundbite on the radio today, and he, he was talking about like you know people now over the age of sixty don't need appointments. I guess in New York, I think that's how it was uh, right. to get their vaccine. All I could think about was did Cuomo get your just, vaccine? Did, did he just watch Sin of a Woman before he gives every <laughs> speech? Like Cuomo really draws out these lines the same way Pacino does. Again, I mentioned it earlier. It's he sounds like Foghorn Leghorn at times. Like he's is he supposed to be from New Orleans? This character, do they say where he's from? They never really say. There's you know, definitely he was draw. on Lyndon Johnson's staff. <laughs> so I would assume maybe this well, I was just reading his bio again. Uh Texas, I don't know if he's from Texas, but maybe he is from the South. I don't know. I like how he just keeps saying Lyndon like he knew him, the same way people yeah. say Bobby like De Niro. But yeah, I liked how I felt like he wasn't over the top when it came to being blind. He could have really reached for that. No pun intended. Like really looking around with his eyes darting around as if, you know, hey, everybody, I'm blind. We've seen cliche blind performances before. This wasn't it. And that kind of goes back to your, your nuance thing. I think the studying, I think the homework that he did, the preparation, Day-Lewis isn't the only one that does that type of shit. Pacino shows he can do it here. And I think it pays off because I believed it. I believed it within two seconds. And mostly it's because of the fact of how he, where he's looking. You know, he, he doesn't do that. The, like you said, the obvious blind situation. He's yes. kind of just looking off from center. Uh, and, he, and he studied how, pe- how blind people look. And there's well. a difference the- between people who have been blind their whole life and people who were blind, like blinded at like age 25, which is the case here with Slade. Yeah, exactly. And you just, it's just, 
kind of a, a, a really believable aspect to it. And one of the, there's a couple of key scenes that I think that represent that. And one of them is, is I like where Charlie's talking to him, I think after the whole deep attempt suicide thing, and he's like, look, and he smiles. He's like, Charlie, are you fucking with me? And I don't know, it was just the way his eyes were looking at the time <laughs> that it, that that seemed realistic. But even in, in when he's like confronting them, him and he says, I'm in the dark here. And you just, the way his positioning of that eyes, you totally believe it. And oh yeah, the third one is when they get pulled over by the cop when he's driving the Ferrari. Ron Eldard. Ron Eldard. And he's just kind of, you know, he's kind of, looks like he's glancing up at them, trying to, to play it off like he's not blind, but you can tell that he is. There's just all those little nuances that I, I totally bought. I never once thought in this entire film that Al Pacino, his character wasn't blind. I it was totally believable to me. And he stayed in character, I guess, a lot of the times offset too to keep that momentum going. I almost feel like with a character like this, you would have to, because I think it would be a lot more difficult to, you know, put the, put the face back on, right? Put the costume back on, put the cape back on in this case. Here's what I didn't think was believable though almost like his pain as a character. And I know we talked about, you know, we, we've talked a lot about mental health on here and suicide and, you know, how people put on a mask at times to, you know, shield the world about what their inner struggles and what they're going through. But in that case, Pacino in here almost doesn't see, I never really feel like he's going through that much other than it's super obvious and he verbalizes it. And it's not that he has to be melancholy throughout the, the whole picture to show you that I just never super believed that his character was in those kind of dark places. And then all of a sudden it just kind of shows up and he's got the gun in the room. It just seemed to zigzag with, like you said, his, his zest, his lust for life that just seemed forced to me. Take it again, take it from somebody who's experienced it for a long time. You get good at hiding that stuff. Right. And I get people, that. A lot of people project, you know, in what you just, you know, commented on a moment ago. And a lot of people project their happiness to, you know, an nth degree to hide it. And I kind of see where you're coming from. And like you said, I don't think you're trying to say that he should be a Ben melancholy throughout no. the film, which would have ruined the character in the first place. Right. But you really don't get that sense of, of suddenly he he's really in the doldrums until, you know, he sleeps with that woman. And then the next day he can't even really get out of bed. I and, like that scene. I like how they showed that though. It's a different way for him just waking up early. Like he always does. Yeah. That's, that was felt very believable. And the yes. scene between him and Charlie, when Charlie has to wrestle the gun away from him and, you know, yes. you know he is clearly in, in, in pain in that case. And I think it just seemed like it came out of nowhere to me. I that's can get, my I can, that's my thing, I guess. I, I I'm cool with it, but I just like that part where you know where he when Charlie does confront him and they're kind of have that struggle for the gun, and he has the way he delivers that line is like pain. What do you know about pain? You know, it just you could hear that you know kind of that anguish. It's funny. I heard that incidentally to get Chris O'Donnell to cry in off camera, he had to scream at him like a drill sergeant, I guess, to get that emotional have to get it to that, to that level, which I was thought was, was interesting. No shit. Wow. Yeah. I kept thinking, you know, you know, uh, O'Donnell, you can move a little bit to the right. Like Pacino's not going to know that you're no longer <laughs> in the sight of his gun. <laughs> Even though Pacino was like a freaking Jedi in here. He was like, what's his face in uh, Rogue One, where he yeah. can sense everything around him. I feel like 
he always knew where O'Donnell was and even like the salute, right? The salute in the hotel room. That was a nice little touch. Let's get, let's get to O'Donnell a little bit here because this is such an interesting, this is just such an interesting part in his acting career because Chris O'Donnell is absolutely nowhere right now other than NCIS Los Angeles. If I told you in 1992 that this actor who you just watched in this film as the most lily white milk toast whiny virginal bitch. <laughs> virginal whiny bitch boy scout and i told you hey guess what in 20 years him and ll cool j are going to be like co-detectives <laughs> in this los angeles cop show you would tell me you would tell me to go screw yeah probably give me another ridiculous prediction like it just seems so when you look back on it. and he had that great run the batman and robins and what the heck else was he in he had a couple big things uh, he just chamber kind of, yeah that's right uh then he just kind of fell off but when you watch this and i thought okay he's bringing just enough ingredients here because i believe this character he never felt like he was acting he did seem like he was really like I, i'd let him date my daughter right he seems like <laughs> the dude next door you can trust him straight a's um, a Charlie. <laughs> he goes are you listening to me son i'm giving you pearls here that, that i love that line <laughs> I'm giving you pearls here. or the other one i keep going back to pacino he goes women who made them god must have been a fucking genius <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, o'donnell just was like a nice i thought the i thought the um the casting was good here i thought he was kind of pitch perfect and you know when he cried i believed it and based on your story now it adds a little bit of heft to it that was probably the most believable scene from him is when, when he was crying, when he was trying to, you know, Frank Slade was trying to kill himself and he's like, fucking do it, you know, kill me too. I thought that was the most believable intense part. Other than that, I thought his performance was probably the weakest part of this film. Um, I really felt you could have plugged in anybody there. Anybody, other, yeah. And, you know, Matt Damon um, read for it, uh, Ben Affleck, Cole Hauser, I guess at some point. Oh, Cole but Hauser. I, 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 that would have been interesting. But at the same time, I, I kind of, Bo Goldman's screenplay is fine. Again, I mean, this is just a, a character vehicle for Al Pacino. And the it's a dialogue. Re- yeah, the, di- credit the, to. the dialogue is is dynamite. Other yes. than that, it's very kind of a, a rote drama performance. And the character of Charlie, I think, is is written kind of weakly. I mean, it is a remake of Profumo Dudana, which is a uh, uh, Italian film uh, by Dino, Dino Risi. But... I just think like that was probably the weakest performance. You know, everybody's in the shadow for the most part of, of Al Pacino in this movie. And I think that would have been the case, maybe whoever you plugged in, but I thought Chris O'Donnell was, was fine. The Thanksgiving dinner scene is interesting to me because Pacino's never more of an asshole as he is, as he is here. Like that's where it really hits you. Like, dude, what's with this freaking guy yet this scene more than any other scene except for maybe the gun scene where he's pointed at, at uh, O'Donnell in the hotel. I felt bad for him more here. It was weird. The way the family reacted to him, that was odd. The family almost looks like way too uncomfortable. Very there's, uncomfortable. A lot of, there's a lot of eggshell walking, which I, I know that was on purpose. It almost seemed like a little too much, though, with that. Like, I don't think that was realistic in terms of, like, look, you're going to welcome the guy in. Even if he's king ass, you're at least going to give him a little bit of a shot. You got people walking in and looking at him like they've seen a ghost. <laughs> and it was just kind of a weird scene to me. It, 
I don't know what to make of it. Like, again, he's a super asshole here, but yet I really felt bad for him. Maybe because I thought for the first time, all right, this guy's got family and they're not like really making an effort to welcome, welcome him back. And I think they haven't made an effort to welcome him back because the way he acted at Thanksgiving is seems par for the course of how he's, <laughs> right. he's acted previously around them. And if he was trying to make, it's almost like he's doing it deliberately to, yes. to spark something so that he can have a reaction. So he can have an excuse to tell his brother, I'm no fucking good. You know, this is the last yes. time you're going to see me type situation. It's almost like he's looking for an out in the way. And so I wonder if that's if, part if he, of the screenplay. I wonder if that's part of the story. Like, did they do that on purpose to show no, no. you that Pacino needs his character Slade needs that that spark? Yeah, I mean it's to feel something almost, right? It's it's tough to I want to be hated. It's almost yeah, like. yeah, it's almost like he's he's he wants to be in that position. You know, he's he's igniting something, uh provoking the situation. Um so it's it's hard to it's hard to know, I think in this. It's a great scene and I love the it fact It really is. Bradley Whitford makes a a, a he's great. little cameo as as Randy Slade and what's his name or um uh uh, Pacino almost chokes him out when he calls him was it Ch- Chuck or Chaz or something. Good I explosive I scene there. Yeah, it's like I'm gonna break your windpipe. <laughs> if Bradley Whitford, which plays a certain kind of sleaze ball, before West, I mean, I'm biased too, and I'm sure you're biased at this point. Now, every time I see Bradley Whitford, Bradley Whitford, I'm kind of on his side. Whereas before West Wing, it was uh, here was we go chump. again with this freaking yeah, an ultimate chump sleaze ball asshole. Now, when I watch this film. I'm almost kind of on his side. Like, hey, good for him for saying something. It just makes me mad. I don't know. And I'm overthinking this movie. I guess that's the point of this podcast anyway. It's fun to, like, overanalyze this shit, right? Because at the end of the day, it's just a stupid two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour movie. But I'm sitting there thinking, man, if I'm one of these family members, I'm going to make an effort to at least maybe change the subject at times. Yeah. Or, hey, fro- hey what's what's new, Frank? something they're just they're just sitting around sulking it's meanwhile he's like meanwhile he's like let me tell you the story about a three-way i had once <laughs> <You> <laughs> right. Know? right he had some freaking really hardcore <laughs> remarks to uh the one was his cousin or niece or something there yeah what, what's interesting you know it's you kind of touched on something that or kind of alluded something that's that's about this film is you it's sometimes hard to get a handle on what this movie i don't want to say is about but you're right rather than, rather than being a a, a, a ve- just a vehicle for al pacino's performance and it's funny because bo, bo goldman who wrote the script kind of felt the same way and he was quoted as saying if there's a moral to the film it is that if we leave ourselves open and available to the surprising contradictions in life we will find the strength to go on which i guess is it kind of wraps this this up because you know Charlie's able to revivify him. I don't want to say save him, but maybe have him see things through a different perspective and is able to, you know, he's, he's able to see that he, he admires Charlie because of his willingness to stand up to the situation at hand, which, you know, somebody offered to buy his side, you know, buy him out for revealing the the three people who, you know, pranked his headmaster and got headmaster at the, the Baird school and got paint all over the car but he wasn't willing to sell out. And I think Frank respects that, especially in the final you know, scene where he says, you know, I always knew the right path, but I never took it because it was too, too damn hard. But this guy, you know, has integrity. You know, he's got courage. And that's the thing that leaders should be made of. So. 
This movie got me thinking during the rewatch. This movie is proof that decades don't end on a dime. In other words, 80s movies don't stop the day nope. calendar turns 1990 because this comes out in 92. It still has that 80s feel. The whole movie feels like one giant Saturday Night Live skit for what a Hollywood movie is. We talked about earlier. <laughs> and look, at this is why I'm such a hypocrite with this film because I freaking love it. I really do. I love every time Pacino opens his mouth, even when he's quiet. I think it's one of those cases you could make the case. The less he talks, almost the better actor he is. And that's really what I have always said. That's where the best actors thrive. It's what do you do when you don't have the greatest written line in Hollywood history? What can you make of a moment? And Pacino is is incredible here. But yeah, there's just something about... I don't know about the, whether it's the cheesy banter among the, the boys at the Baird school, whether it's that hokey ending, which I do love where he, where Chris O'Donnell gets off and, and Pacino says, Hua, and then the crowd goes nuts <laughs> way over the top. And then the fricking corny, cheesy, like dramatic, you know, victorious music kicks in or whether it's the family, not just sitting around like a bunch of lunks and not making an effort or whether it's the, it's not really well shot. I mean, Martin Brest, we love him from before. I don't think he does anything that like you or I could have done with a camera. I don't know. But yet I love this movie. So I don't know where I'm going with this question. It's funny because, you, <laughs> it, you know, it's interesting. You, the fact that you said, I love the fact that you said the 80s films didn't end when the calendar year flipped from December 31st, 1989 to January 1st, 1990. Because if you look at who actually scored this film and who shot this film, it's a who's who of 80s stuff. I mean, first of all, you got the music, which the music is really good, but it's very reminiscent of like a a, a dead poet society. Yes. It has that feel or... or uh, and part of it's that New England fall autumn yeah, vibe. Has that influence. And it's by Thomas Newman, who, I mean, it, look at the... He's been nominated 50, 15 times for an Oscar, never won, but... Look this at is that, a so, case, though, where the score just kind of melds into the film. Yes. And it's it forgettable. It's good, but, I mean, but it's forgettable. It's kind of forgettable, and it's it's, but it has that '80s influence. Like, look at the '80s films he did: <laughs> Desperately Seeking Susan, Real Genius, Jumping Jack Flash, The Lost Boys, and then the same thing could be said for the actual cinematography, which again feels kind of has that '80s flair to it. I mean, the cinematography uh, in this case is done by Donald Thorin. You know, he did Officer and a Gentleman, uh, Thief, which we I think we discussed before. Oh yeah. Purple, Purple Rain. He did Midnight Run. He did Lockup. So that has that. The if you if you're talking about the fact that the '80s didn't end and this movie came out in 90, 1992, it's because it, it's the the production staff behind this feels very much like pushing to make this kind of an '80s film, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's it's a good movie. It's a very solid movie. I mean, it was nominated for Best Picture, and I think Pacino was very deserving for for getting for getting the Oscar. I don't think it was one of those lifetime achievement situations. I think he earned this one, considering that he got nominated seven different times before this before this year, including in the same year he got nominated for uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross uh, in uh, for the best supporting category and lost that one. Probably and there's never been a situation where somebody's won both in the same year, but I think he was much deserving of this Academy Award for sure. You know, it's weird because Pacino is is younger in this than I remember. And I know everything's relative about age, blah, blah, blah. But I really recall him being like kind of an old geezer back in the day when this came out. Not the case. He's only 52 in this. Now, Pacino, mm -hmm. not uh, not Slade. So I don't, I'm don't not know sure. how old Slade is. 
Right. And I don't know if he's trying, they're trying to make him look older in this. It seems like they are because 52 yeah, is only 10 years older than us. I always got the feeling that Slade was like 60. That's what because, I thought. I mean, you can't, I mean, I didn't think he was like 50 because then he'd be like, you're 20 something years old and on your Lyndon Johnson staff. I don't really buy that. So oh, that's a good point. Yeah. And I don't know if it's, if it's one of those things too, or, I mean, you forget that Pacino kind of disappeared a lot in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he came back for Godfather three, which was, I believe in 1990, they yep. made him look a lot older with that weird, oh, very like much. buzz cut look, mm-hmm. um, that he had in there to the point where that kind of confused me. And I, I know like a lot of other people that I've talked to over the years where once he was in a few movies after that, including this, you're like, Oh, that's right. Pacino isn't like really that old. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's just something that kind of jumped out at me on the rewatch. Corey, I don't know how we made it an hour into the film without talking about Rochester's own, the late great Philip Seymour mother Hoffman. Yes, indeed. He, he plays, as a George Willis Jr. in this, and what a delightedly stuck-up, yuppie, scumbag idiot. <laughs> and he auditioned five times for this role, but I and 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 won it. But honestly, and I'm I'm not saying this because I have a Rochester bias, and the man graduated from Fairport, which is a hop, skip, and a junk from where I live right now. I honestly think next to Pacino, he's my number two in terms of performance. In yes. This. What do you think? He's phenomenal. He steals. So many scenes just in that opening scene along. I, I loved how they were walking along. And I, you know, I always talk about, I always harp on the mannerisms and the little weird little nuances that people do, but I love, it's kind of like, what is it? Wins over replacement in War? baseball. Yeah. Yeah. There's kind of that where it's like, okay, if you take anybody else and you put him in that role, what do you get more when you put Hoffman in that role? And here's one of the little things that I picked out and it's really dumb, but if you go back and watch it, I just, I just got a kick out of it. So they're walking and talking. It's like the four or five friends on a little path through the Baird school campus. And at one point, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's like, he does little things like he takes the one guy ahead of him and he, he pulls him back by like his book bag. It's just a fun little like scene that, you know, you and I might do for if we were walking along the Brockport campus, just kind of, just kind of screwing around. And at one point, if you look and you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I pay attention to him more now because I know he's, you know, he's local or maybe because he's passed and you tend to like, you know, soak up those moments. But at one point, somebody else is talking, Chris O'Donnell, the other schmuck and Hoffman looks like he like, he gets ready to hawk a loogie. And at one point he's going to spit to the left and he realizes there's like maybe something there or he's going to hit something. So like he holds it almost turns and then finally spits out on the other side. And just a weird little like thing like that is something so typical that like a 21 year old punk would do the way he walks and he's joshing and he's busting balls and he's got that like sleaze ball smile. I thought he was tremendous in here. I got to be honest and I feel guilty saying it. I forgot he was in this. I think most people do sometimes, you know, cause this was PTA before he was Pete or I'm sorry. This was uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman before he was Philip Seymour Hoffman, so to speak. But you're right. All these little mannerisms, like even the way he smiles, like, you know, you know, when he's talking to, to Charlie, he's like, we stonewall everyone. Hey, hey, go, hey, you know, just kind of like, you know, that given that that um, glad handing, you know, um, what's that? I forget the expression like a, a Johnny come lately type situation or even when he's in life, he's like, man, I got to get this. I got to take I got to take this book out. I promise I'll have it back by 730. You know, that whole kind of he's he's like drowning in privilege. Or even when he's trying to like 
be, I don't want to say duplicitous, but uh, kind of uh, dueling back and forth between the headmaster of the hearing at the end where he's like, you mean, what do you mean definitively? And he's trying to like, trying to laugh things off. It just the way the whole structure of it is, 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 I love his performance in this. I want to, I really want to slap him. It's almost like you're almost mad that he's not in this, in this more, to be honest. what did you think of James Reborn, the Dean? I kind of needed a little bit bigger of an asshole for this role, especially for the first half of the movie where he kind of seemed like your buddy's dad, but he really, you know, turns it up a few notches in that quote unquote courtroom scene. Now he's not Dean Wormer action in terms of asshole from like uh, <laughs> no. animal house, but at the same time, he just kind of, again, he's very much that kind of has that aristocratic, you know, it's all about the Baird integrity and we're building Baird young men and all this other stuff. But he, you know, he's, he's overinflating the Jaguar guy. It's like a symbol of, you know, the board giving it to me. Like, I was like, dude, it's a car, you know, come on. And the fact that he tried to buy Charlie's future was just a, such a scumbag move that I have no, I really didn't have any respect for him, but I didn't right. think he was like, he could, he could have, we got about 85% asshole. I could have used 95, but his, is, yes. I, I, I do like his, I do like what he, he his performance and his He's, situation and, the, the question I always I wanted to point to you is how, the fact that you've got Harry, Trent and Jimmy and also George, <laughs> these stuck up rich assholes. I mean, if it's you in that situation, aren't you burning these fuckers? Like, how? what's your take on this? Oh, my God. That's such a great, great question, because through the movie and I to be honest, I forgot a lot about this. I haven't seen this in years. There was so much I forgot about. I was thinking that, too. I'm like, wait a minute. Who? What do I want Chris O'Donnell to do? I really don't know. Like, you're absolutely right. That's a question. And I think that goes back to like, this is such a weird film in terms of the ideas and the screenplay. Like, it's almost just the whole prank was weird. Like, would the Dean really get that pissed? Like, it's an all boys school. I'm sure this shit happens all the time. And that's probably the least of the bad pranks. But yeah, that's a good point. I didn't know what I was supposed to think. And to be honest, like my moral compass was all over the place. Maybe it was that's intentional. Maybe it is. Maybe they don't want you as a viewer to know, like, what would you do? And then Pacino really is the one that sells you on what's the quote unquote kind of moral path. That's a yeah. great question, though. He, I mean, he I would have sold those assholes. But that's the thing is they, they don't make them like they're super evil. Like they're likable no. dudes. Even the one dude with like the, the main guy there, like the leader of the group. Yeah. Harry, I think, but it's just, I think he sums it up best. Pacino does in that speech where he says, I don't know, you know, I don't know if Charlie's actions here are right or wrong. I'm not a judge or jury, but I, but I can tell you this, he won't um, sell out to sell out to buy his future, which to me, that, that was my take on this. If Trask has hadn't, the fact that Charlie is able to stand up and say, I'm not going to turn these people in because somebody tried to buy my future. That I respect. Indeed. That I can understand. That I have some integrity. That I can stand behind. If that situation wouldn't happen, fuck those guys. They, they can burn as far as I'm concerned. Stuck up assholes. They can suck my dick. Seriously. <laughs> I, I would not. All I would two not, inches. I, oh, hey, oh, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't take but two seconds to throw those guys under the bus. Forget that. But well, I, the fact that he got tried to be sold out, that if, if, if that had happened to me, then I'd be like, nah, you can't buy me. So, And I want to apologize to the viewers. I've been kind of giggling through 
I mean, you're funny anyway, Corey, but there's been times like you've been, you know, waxing philosophical and I, and I'm giggling, not because of what you're saying, but you know, I'm glancing at my notes and I'm like, as you're you know, doing your thing, I'm reading these Pacino lines, like in Pacino's voice mm-hmm. in my mind. And there are so many little instances where I just laughed out loud. And like, just, just when, like, I think the first thing he says during that, we'll call it the final courtroom scene where, where Rebhorn, the Dean's kind of going on and on, but Gino just says, this is such a crock of shit. <laughs> and everybody's like, Whoa, who is this dude? And then later on, and I mentioned it before, I really like the camera work and the editing on that scene where. You know, Pacino's kind of on a roll and he's feeling himself in terms of the morality and, and, you know, and he says, and Harry, Jimmy, Trent, wherever you are out there, fuck you too. So at first I love the camera, the, the camera cuts to those guys in the crowd and they're kind of smiling. Like mm-hmm. they, they like how this feels because for a moment there, at least they feel like they're in the right. They're the good guys. And now this like quasi hero who nobody's seen or heard from before is like shouting them out pretty much. But then when he throws the F-bomb in there, the camera goes back to those guys, and then they're all like, they're looking around embarrassed, flabbergasted. Yep. That fun, that's a fun little like five seconds. Folks, really fun, uh, worth rewatching. It's funny to go how that speech kind of goes back and forth between funny and poignant and, yes. and deep. You know, it's like, if you think you preparing these manhole man was it minnows for manhood you better think again you know or i love the fact what he said he says out of order i'll show you out of order i'll show you but i'm too too old i'm too tired i'm too fucking blind he's like i've been around you know there's times that i could see and i've seen boys like these younger than these had their arms ripped off and their legs ripped off and the one line that i always take away from this movie that just i cuts to the core and I just such a beautiful line is, is he says, but there is nothing like the sight of an of an amputated spirit. There is no prosthetic for that. Poetic. I thought, thought, God damn, what a line. And with the way that he he delivers it too. And as as somebody who's who's been around, yeah, there's you know, sometimes having uh somebody whose soul and spirit has been sucked out of them. And to see that is worse than seeing somebody who's got an amputated leg because you just see this person that they used to be somewhere glimmering in their eyes. Um, and I love this final scene because it gives Pacino a chance to stand up and kind of do right for a change. Yeah. That, you know, it's like, I'm going to protect this boy with integrity. I'm going to lo- use my influence. And maybe this is the turning point for me to start to be a better person. I love the way you put that. Yeah, so much poetry. And I wrote that that scene down, too, about the amputated spirit. There's no prosthetic for that. I also liked how he was saying how he's like, let him continue on his journey. You hold this boy's future in your hands, committee. It's a valuable future. Believe me, don't destroy it. Protect it. Embrace it. It's going to make you proud one day. I promise you. He doesn't get overly poetic there. It almost mm-hmm. seems very Hemingway-esque in yes. how sparse it is. I like the way they wrote that. I like the way he delivered it. You know, he could be witty at times at the end. He's slinging insults. He's throwing spears, but he makes a dandy of an argument. And I think that's tough to do in some of those monologues is pull off all those different emotions and avenues. And I think that's one of, it's really like as corny as it is at times, it's really like the highlight of this film is that final you know, 20 minutes or whatever. I think that's the part that people remember the most. Although there is a lot of sequences of little minute, you know, little moments, you know, you've got the Ferrari scene, you've got the scene with, with the, you know, him going to Thanksgiving and, 
you know, I love the whole, I love his whole interaction with Manny when he's the, the limo driver, when he's trying to, to get yeah. him, he's like to find a good escort service. He's yeah. Like, right. Top of the line, Manny. <laughs> yeah. What else does he say? He's got a couple of good lines in there too. Or the tango scene. We didn't even talk about oh my the tango gosh, scene, yeah. which they, apparently they rehearsed for two weeks and shot for three days. That's such a, that's such an interesting little moment which kind of lends credence to what you said before about like sometimes you didn't buy the depression stuff because it's things like that you see just such the spark of of life that he has when he's sitting there you know uh uh tangoing with donna or also known as gabrielle Enoir, who you may remember from uh burn notice uh, but i just i love that part it's so kind of just a nice little quiet interesting moment and it's funny because that's kind of the any clip or scene or photo from that sequence is really, I think, what people remember the most. I think when you visually, I think when you think of Son of a Woman, you think of probably like the cover of the film where you got him and O'Donnell hand in hand, and Pacino's got like the um, the cane out, and you see Manhattan in the background. I believe you think of that kind of final courtroom scene, of course. But then more than else, more than anything else, you think of the tango. Mm-hmm. And you think of them just kind of gliding over the floor and just how charming he was. And I thought she was really good in there too. Gabrielle Anwar for only like that seven minutes. Yep. Um, you know, you could tell she was charmed. She really liked him. Was she, does she from, I'm just looking at her. Okay. So she's British, British American. She's from England. Cause she definitely had an accent going there. Yeah. I, I love that, that it's one of those things that sometimes you see an actress and has that memorable turn. That's just there for a couple of minutes. Yeah. And I always had this, I always had this feeling, you know, you sometimes project about what happens after the events in certain movies. And I always felt that maybe that little moment with Frank Slade where she danced made her see things a little more clearly. And she broke up with her douchebag of a boyfriend. And what a douchebag haircut. Which, which with someone that, that um, yeah, total douchebag haircut with someone that appreciated <laughs> her, her more, because it's like, you got the impression that, how dare you make this beautiful woman wait? I mean, like you kidding? And then come in there and like, oh, we got to get out of here because we got to go see Stan and whoever downtown. I'm like, oh, this yuppie asshole. Go away. Yeah, like she, yeah, like she's never found anyone to dance with. And then finally, boom. Mm-hmm. And then he was so condescending about it. So he's like, oh, you finally found someone to dance the tango with. Kind of like, oh, you found, he, he's like, oh, you drew a picture. Now, how nice. I was like, ah, away with you. <laughs> And that was right where like people started to turn against the whole yuppie thing too, right? Like it was big in the eighties and everybody embraced it with wall street. And what's the uh, Michael J Fox film based on the book. There? Oh, uh, secret of my success. Loved that movie when I was a kid. And there was another one too, where he was doing Coke and everything. A uh, light of day. No, Oh, uh, lip, no. Um, oh, maybe I'm shoot. thinking Andrew McCarthy. There was another one. No, where I think I, I know you're, yeah, I can't remember the name of it. I know, you're talking but yeah, there was, so there was that whole, like, okay, yuppies are, you know, that's the thing, the wall street hustlers. And then in the nineties, I think culture started to turn against those guys. And this is kind of like a little bit, you're getting a little taste of that here. We're clearly like, he's supposed to be not necessarily like a villainous dude, but the D bag, I guess is, I like, uh, I like the way, the way that you, you put it. Some other notes here. I wanted to get your take on, uh, Chris O'Donnell, not getting a kick out of Pacino until halfway through the plane ride. Like, does this dude have like no sense of humor? The minute I met Slade in that freaking like, you know, small home in the back of that yard of his niece, I'd be all about this dude. 
Yeah, he kind of is very gruff, but there's something about him. Uh, incidentally, Bright Lights, Big City was the movie that that's the one. Boom. For, for Michael J. Fox. Uh, we had our we had our we had our fact checkers on that one. Um, but <laughs> thanks, interns. Yeah, I kind of now I lost my train of thought. Um, the plane ride. The plane ride. Yeah, I I don't know because I'm somebody. Listen. I'm one of these people that I hate confrontation. Like it just, ugh, I just can't deal with it very well. So I don't know if the way he approached Charlie, I it's initially, I don't know if I would have been able to deal with that. I probably would have backed down and run away, but especially when he throws what, like a shoe at his knees. Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> like what an asshole. Like who's that? <laughs> who's that? Uh, it's like, I love how that initial me, he's like this, this describing his in-law, his uh, niece and, and nephew though. He's like, he's a mechanic who can't fit shit. He's a, she, she's a homemaker, makes cookies, tastes like wing nuts. And as for the tots, they're twits. <laughs> That's, he sounded like foghorn leghorn there again. Yeah. yeah. Every freaking line he's got. Yeah. It almost sounded like he was, I always say that about certain rappers, like it, it, you're not any good if it sounds like you're reading what you wrote. And I think sometimes it seems like he's just kind of reading off a script. That's why I think I, I was, I, I mentioned how it felt like a, like it was very Broadway esque at times, but you're almost laughing. He's almost cliche at the beginning, but then he gets into that groove and that could be like a director editing thing too. But, uh, no, Pacino all around. Hey, what'd you think of the paint on the car prank? I actually thought it was pretty slick. I like that. That I, that's kind of ingenious. The fact that you're able to do that, secure it, does show some scientific acumen that they were able to rig that up. And then you got to break into the PA system and make sure nobody's around so that they can announce it that way. I like thought Andy overall, Dufresne. Yeah, using the Andy, PA system. Andy Dufresne. Overall, though, I thought it was a very good. Uh, yeah, that was a solid prank. Uh, I uh, nine on ten. Uh, <laughs> bad stuntman work alert when Pacino makes that hairpin turn in the uh, Ferrari I saw that the stand-in for Chris O'Donnell the guy had like long hair <laughs> definitely worth rewatching. I also got a kick out of the old school like Carolina Blue NYPD cars yeah, which right? you only seen in like 80s movies speaking anymore. of 80s it looks like something that a Simon and Simon I'm like, I could outrun one of those cars. It's like waiting for TJ Hooker to like, you know, slide across the top of the, the hood. I was going to say, I also find at the height of irony, the fact that the majority of the Baird School uh, filming took place at the Emma Willard School in Troy, New York, which is a school for girls. So you, you shot, <laughs> I didn't see that. You shot a movie that took place at a, a prep school for boys what, at a place what in real life was actually a prep school for girls. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty. Troy's like uh, near Utica or more downstate. Uh, I think it's, yeah, it's near more, more near Utica. My dad actually played them in football when he was in high school. Cause he went to, to Homer, New York, which is around that area. So wait, he played the girl's school or yeah. Yeah. He played the girl's school. <laughs> uh, real quick here. Well, this isn't a real quick question, but here's my take in a nutshell on the whole Pacino versus De Niro debate, which I always like to think about. Was there, you know, or did we I already talk about that? This. No, we never talked about this, but I never even bought into that debate. I didn't see it as a debate. I just thought they were both good, great actors who, you know, do different things. But I don't think they're similar in terms of, I, I don't know. I never saw that as a debate. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, mean, I cut you off. You go ahead. No, it's, it's more, uh, it's more of a weird me thing. It, here's the irony. So, so it's the only, it's the debate you created. It's just you. <laughs> <laughs> I do this all the time where I complain that people compare different artists. Where are artists. the cops in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> that they, 
<laughs> you, I, I get mad when people compare artists or athletes, but then I, I bitch at them for doing that. But then I find myself doing it. I'm like, you don't need to, it doesn't matter who's better Pacino or De Niro. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about, don't worry about the fact that they were in heat or the awful righteous kill together. <laughs> what was the other one? Oh, freaking Irishman. Yeah. The it's Irish. just those three. I think there might've been one more, but I can't, I thought I there was one too. Yeah. No, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's one of those things, but my take in a nutshell is I think De Niro's better at disappearing into a role, transforming his body, you know, and I think if you pick like his top five dynamic roles, it seems like he's a different character, even though I think in his other films outside of those, maybe like top five, he's almost like the same type character at times. But Pacino, here's, I think this is where Pacino kind of stands out for me. He gets the most, and this comes back to this movie, he gets the most out of every line. He squeezes the juice out of more every line and every scene. Where Pacino, or De Niro sometimes is so stoic, and that's part of his thing, right? Mm -hmm. He's menacing, he has that look. Pacino could be menacing too, but he also can be a lot more during those those times of calm and little mannerisms and looks that he gives. Better at pregnant pauses. <laughs> Better at pregnant pauses. Yeah, so I don't know. That was just something that kind of, I always tend to revisit that debate that only apparently I'm the one having. The one, it's funny to, to <laughs> you're just having it with yourself. No, I get that. I think, you know, it's kind of like, like, like a Larry versus magic type situation. <laughs> right. you know, that, that people Especially because like they were in the Godfather together. I think that's yeah. kind of like the, the thing. They're kind of always kind of have that. They're always going to have that connection because they came of age acting wise during the seventies and worked with a lot of the same directors, you know, that that's whole. So they're, they're all ever going to be forever linked. So I don't think necessarily this is a debate that's just going on in your head. It's one that's raged for 50 years, but I guess for whatever reason, as much as a cinephile as I am, I never really got, gave it much thought. Uh, but I think all the points you made were salient in terms of how they are different and how they each have their own strengths and, and, and nuances that they bring to whatever particular role. Two more f- final uh, Pacino quotes here before we get moving along. Intelligence, of which you have none. <laughs> and then the other one I wrote down, which I got a kick out of, he goes to O'Donnell, I think. How would you know? Been watching MTV your whole life. Another, <laughs> yeah, sign, of, that, another sign of the era. Nobody would that was, say that now. That was such an 80s. That's such an 80s line to say, but I thought... <laughs> I thought it was I, doing doing the research for this. I came up, up, upon well, actually, one line I, I I really liked too that we didn't talk about that kind of is cliche but is reflective of the whole film was he he said something uh, if you get tangled up you just tangled on tango tango on not like life which is kind of what you know Chris O'Donnell reflects back to him at the end and I love the fact that he says you know give me two reasons why I should why I should you know live any space I'll give you two you dance the pank, tango and drive a Ferrari better than anyone I've ever seen which I always thought was nice but retort the one the I found an interesting anecdote that really kind of made me chuckle uh with uh Pacino winning his Oscar for this shortly after he won his Oscar he was actually in a crowded elevator with the Oscar and the Oscar happened to be bumping a female in front of him in the butt. And she kind of turned, turned around and like give him a look and had to reassure her that, Hey, that's not me. It was the Oscar statue. <laughs> so I thought that was a, a pretty funny little anecdote. Who was the woman? I don't know. She, they didn't an unnamed woman, some guy named Glenn close. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I won't be ignored. Al. 
Now for the Leo McKern Award, named for the lovable drunk Imperius from 1985's Lady Hawk, this award is given to the character we would most like to have as a neighbor in real life. I think this one's obvious. Corey, you begin. You know, sometimes I feel like this award, it's sometimes it becomes very obvious depending on the movie and sometimes not. This is one of those, like last week, I don't think it was super obvious. This one I think is very obvious. I'd love to have Frank Slade as as my neighbor. He just seems like he would be so fun and engaging. Like once you got over that initial hump of, you know, his, his abrasiveness and and stuff, you'd be able to sit down have a drink, shoot the shit and, and, and have some fun. So yeah, I got to go with Frank Slade. Certainly not Charlie. What would he say? (laughs) Poor O'Donnell. We really gave him hell in this episode. What would, oh, wow. what would Slade say to you? Corey, spell the name kind of funny. C-O-R-R-Y-E. Your parents must have been drunk. <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, <laughs> Van Castle Cook, where you from, Persia? You prince like that? How many vowels you got in your fucking name? Give me a drink. <laughs> what about me? Mayo. That's oh, a condiment. That's a salad dressing. <laughs> Ain't no last name. This whole podcast is basically us just doing Pacino impressions, it seems like. Uh, ASAP. Well, that, that we've got the one line that he too is like, he's like, I want this, I want this lion wall with John Daniels. He's like, don't you mean Jack Daniels? Well, even when you've known him as long as I have, son, that's a joke, kid. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the awesome, awesome Pacino. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time once again for Luke and Corey's recommendations. This could be anything under the sun. Could be books. Could be movies, could be music, could be comic books, could be food. Anything and everything is up for grabs. Mr. Mayo, what are some of your recommendations this week? Corey, I got a book that I've been meaning to get on Amazon, on the internet. Uh, a fan of Wes Anderson put this book together, and I just freaking love it. And I saw it at Barnes & Noble the other day. I'm holding it up. It's called Accidentally Wes Anderson. Hmm. And it's really cool. Basically, it's a bunch of real-life places that seemed plucked from the world of Wes Anderson and the fascinating stories behind each place, pretty much. So it's all these, like, you know, look, when you watch a Wes Anderson film, you know it when you see it, right? Like, right. there's the symmetry, the color palette. Um, the these quirkiness. Like, the quirkiness, these obscure places like these hotels and random red cabins among a blue background. And this book is just a bunch of people who have like found these type of places, whether it's like a telephone booth or an old movie theater um, or a parking meter somewhere. And they have little stories behind them and the photos are awesome. The locations are really cool. And the book is like, like 400 pages long. This is a real gem. I freaking love this thing. It's the perfect coffee table book. And a great gift if uh, you know someone that's a Wes Anderson fan. Cool. So my first recommendation actually dovetails nicely into the movie that we did tonight because I highly recommend, if you guys have never seen it, to check out YouTube and go watch uh, Bill Hader's impression of Al Pacino. It's some of the best thing stuff I've ever seen, especially his SNL skits. There's one that he did that was Al Pacino calls his bank. And it's like <laughs> he's calling, he's like, <laughs> he's trying to buy a mattress and he's just like the sleep is too- I won't take my card because it's acting stupid you know it's just <laughs> and there's another one where they did like because SNL for a while did this thing where they were doing uh outtake like fake outtake reading for for certain people who supposedly read for famous movies like Ghostbusters and Back to the Future and they had Bill Hader being Al Pacino reading for Doc Brown <laughs> oh gosh <laughs> he's like it's like 
great, Scott. And he's like, no, it's, it's great, Scott. And he's like, what? And he's like, great, Scott. Hey, you're doing a great job, Scott. Three cheers for Scott. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> can't get it right. It's, it's hysterical. If you ever get a chance, go watch it. It's great. Bill Hader's tremendous. Yes. My next one is, I should have used it uh, last week for Drive, a group called the Bad Dreamers. It's like this pop synth type group out of uh, Los Angeles. And one of the reasons I, I found out about these guys is because the main guy who sings and composes and does all that stuff is uh, from my town, the People's Republic of Irondequoit. Gentleman by the name of Dave Schuler. He's about three or four years or three or four grades uh, below me at Eastridge High School. Uh, super talented music producer. He's been nominated for like Grammys, working with like Pink and a couple other like big name people. But this is his own like pop synth band called the Bad Dreamers. And it's got the type of music that maybe should have been in Drive. And mm-hmm. I feel like this dude's group which is basically like him and I think maybe one other person. Um, I feel like they're like one appearance away from stardom. Like if the Hmm. right movie plucks him or he's in the right, like, you know, car commercial or something like that. Boom. He's going to be, he's going to be big time. So the bad dreamers, check them out. Check them out. (laughs) Oh, this is never going to end. Um, my next recommendation, I've recommended uh, him before, but Movies with Mikey under Film Joy. He just had a really cool one that he did. Call, it was a retrospective on the movies of M. Night Shyamalan. Oh. Which apparently, it's not, the way you pronounce it, it's, it's not, we always hang the, the lawn like it's like Shyamalan. It's actually Shyamalan. Like you just, Shyamalan. You, Shyamalan. you just kind of cut it because he actually had, and I, I forget what the guy's name is. But there is a, his, there's an um, uh, Indian like film critic who is actually born in, in uh, uh, Mumbai and then immigrated to the United States. And he, he does all sorts of different reviews for stuff. But they kind of had a conversation going back and forth. And looking at his, the, the career filmography's perspective, aside from his first film, Wide Awake, which starred Rosie O'Donnell, was basically this non-soccer movie. His first four films, in my mind, are bangers. I mean, you've got The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, Signs in the Village. I know some people bang on The Village, but I still think it's great, even with a twist. I love it. After that, things really kind of descend badly, and I think it was one of those situations where he started to believe his own hype. Because if you look at Lady in the Water, he casts himself in a role. Usually it's just a small, in most of his films, it's like a small little bit part. He casts himself in a role as an author whose work will literally change the world someday. So it's almost the way they put it in movies with Mikey is like, it's like he's smelling his own farts. And you've got, I mean, after that, you've got Lady in the Water, The Happening, The Last Airbender, and After Earth. And those are just some god-awful, terrible movies. He starts to rebound a little bit with The Visit because he made a low-budget film. And then Split just kind of was, I think, in some ways, his return to form. Split is an excellent film if you haven't seen it. I haven't gotten to see Glass yet. But it was very... Uh, cool to kind of see that retrospective on uh, on M Night Shyamalan and how I forget that he was he only lived in India for like the first six months of his life and they moved to Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia which he's a huge fan of like the Sixers and and uh, the Eagles and all that so it's very interesting so I highly recommend that Film Joy Movies with Mikey it's a retrospective on M Night Shyamalan. Whoo, that was a good one, sir. I like it. Good recommendations. I got one more here. A great article in Vulture, vulture vulture.com, in conversation, our boy Mads Mikkelsen, Mm -hmm. who uh, we're pretty excited about learning that he's going to be in the next Indiana Jones. We 
presume that he's going to be the yeah. villain, right? Can we talk about that for just a second? I don't want to cut you off, but I really am excited to talk about this for just a moment. I'm so excited to start to see some casting for this film. Yes. And the fact that Mads Mikkelsen is in this, and I know you said that I, I think he'd be great as a villain, and I would be very surprised if he hasn't been cast in the villain. But if he's a villain, I have a sneaking suspicion he might be an ex-Nazi. And because they've really mm. been, there's starting to be some buzz. It's going to be set in the 60s. They know that for sure, that this might be a boys from Brazil type situation and that the artifact might actually be the Spear of Destiny, like we talked about before. Ah. We're also known as the Spear of Longinus. So I could see some situations where this goes to, you know, South America, maybe maybe into Europe. And I just found out the other day that um, a, a decent chunk of this film is actually going to be set in New York City. So I wouldn't be surprised if like Indy is like the, the head curator at the Natural Hum- History Museum. That would be kind of, that kind would of be interesting. Cool. But I love the fact that Mads, Mads Mikkelsen has been cast uh, in this film. And please, please, love of God, get John Reese davies in here. Bring me back some Sala. But, That's uh, what my wife right. said. She was like, I hope Sala's in this one. <laughs> oh, he's, he's, he's expressed several times to, to Steven Spielberg. He's like, hey, I'm just, just saying that Temple of Doom and Crystal Skull weren't as successful as the other ones, and it's because they were missing me. <laughs> they got, I think they will end up putting him in there. I really I think do. so. I, I hope think so. so. I, they like nostalgia, too. Um, no, but Mickelson, though, we've always liked him. So many different types of films, and there's a mystery about him. And he's super articulate. In this interview, I wanted to read this. Uh, I know this podcast is going long here, this episode, but really good. It's one of the last questions of the interview. Actually, I think it is the last one. The, uh, the writer says, is there a life philosophy that you feel has carried you through your career? And this is Mickelson's answer. This is really cool. I love it. He says, quote, my approach to do what I do in my job, and it might even be the approach to my life, is that everything I do is the most important thing I do. Whether it's a play or the next film, it is the most important thing. I know it's not going to be the most important thing, and it might not be close to being the best, but I have to make it the most important thing. That means I will be ambitious with my job and not with my career. That That's a very big big difference because if I'm ambitious with my career, everything I do now is just stepping stones leading to something, a goal I might never reach. And so everything will be disappointing. But if I make everything important, then eventually it will become a career big or small. We don't know, but at least everything was important. I was like, wow, that's something else, man. Yeah. And he, you can tell that he brings that to every role that he's in. I've never seen him take a day off. I've never seen a situation where he phoned it in. And it's amazing to me. Think about this one just for a second, uh, Lucas or Lucas, Luke, when it comes to this situation, when it comes to Mads Mikkelsen, you're talking now that he's joined Indy, the Indiana Jones franchise. This is the fourth major film franchise that he will have been a part of star wars rogue one star wars star wars he was part of um uh uh, james bond and he was also part of the mcu when he was in um i believe it was dr strange uh so that's right oh my gosh that shit like that does not happen by accident so that's a very interesting life philosophy to have and that's something i really respect kudos for to him what a great what a great suggestion very cool interview though, and he's just like a he's just a cool dude to look at, like on film. Nobody else looks like him. I mentioned that Valhalla Rising, which uh what's the guy's name that did uh Drive? The oh yeah, Nicholas uh, Winding Refn or Winding he, Refn. Yeah, so he did that one of Valhalla Rising. Very odd movie, but it really is worth checking out, not only for the direction, but also 
our boy, uh, our boy Mickelson. Incidentally, one of the movies he did last year is up for an Oscar. Uh, two, actually, uh, is Another Round. He was a star in that one. It's up for Best Foreign Film, or International Feature, I guess I should say, and the director of that film is up for Best Director. Uh, but I have two final recommendations. Um, I, I've recommended this before, but the, the Literally podcast with Rob Lowe, I listened to one where they had Zach Galifianakis on it. Hmm. Obviously funny, but they had a really interesting moment that they talked to each other about privacy and the fact that, you know, Zach Galifianakis is, is like, we look at trying to be part of these like Amazon shows, you know, Amazon's huge role, the television that they put out there. But I don't think sometimes, because if you, we don't look at who, how we're feeding the beast, because if you look at a lot of the business practices of Amazon, it's not necessarily the most friendly thing in the world, considering all the data mining and, and stuff that, that's been done like that. And he had a good kind of back and forth with Rob Lowe, where Rob Lowe was like, you know, I kind of see where you're coming from. At the same time, I feel like the genie's kind of out of the bottle and privacy as we know it is no longer going to be you know, it, it's, it's just a thing of the past. So it was a really nice interchange between these two people to have a discussion about privacy, which I thought was fascinating. Um, so check that out. And the last thing I would recommend is just a, to guys, um, I would say that have significant others, uh, listen oh. to your significant others, listen to your wives. Uh, so it doesn't get you into trouble uh, because, um, you know, I had an incident where I didn't really listen to my wife this past <laughs> week and always over the last couple of months, actually. And it really kind of cost us. We got to get a new dishwasher. And that was was totally on me. So just make sure that, you know, you guys out there, everyone, everyone in general, just practice, practice act, active listening uh, when you're when you're engaging with other people, whether or not that's your significant other or not. <laughs> I love this recommendation section. This should be its own podcast. We just call it recommendations. Three recommendations. Just, and like, just shut up and the, head the pod. <laughs> a good film, an early good film for me and justice for all. You should see it. Attica, that's a different film. All right. So what do we got for next week? In my opinion, the best Ron Howard film out there, 1991's Backdraft. We're going from Pacino to De Niro, as he's a, a big part of that film, but a lot of great casts and Baldwin's in there. Kurt Russell and an amazing performance. I can't wait to revisit this one because I haven't seen it in probably 20 years, 20 Ditto. years or so. And I still, I hope it holds up uh, as a film. So looking forward to next week, we've got Backdraft. Ditto. I'm, how's De Niro going to be in this? How about Kurt Russell, I think, is going to win the movie. That's my prediction. Him or the one Baldwin there? Which one is it? I forget the name. I think of it's Steven. Yeah, the one who got a little frisky and sliver. All right. He is Corey Cook. I'm Luke Mayo. That is episode 58, Son of a Woman. Hooah. We'll see you clowns and curfew breakers next week. And remember, kids, all movies are subjective. Your mileage, they'll vary. Hooah. <laughs>